This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Welcome to the very first episode of Food Issues. I'm so excited to be here and grateful for you listening in. 2020 is behind us, and there's no doubt that COVID-19 has had a profound, lasting impact on our lives. We know that it has widened health inequities, increased the prevalence of food insecurity, and increased rates of childhood obesity. Not only are kids snacking more and moving less, but between distance learning and more time overall, there are even more opportunities for marketers to target them with ads and product placements for unhealthy foods. So now that we're almost a year into the pandemic, let's take a look at where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. Today on the show, I'm talking with Dr. Marlene Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity and professor of human development and family sciences at UConn. Dr. Schwartz studies how nutrition and wellness policies implemented in childcare settings, schools, food banks, and local communities can improve children's health. Dr. Schwartz earned her PhD in psychology from Yale University, and before joining the Rudd Center, she served as co-director of the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders for 10 years. Well, Dr. Schwartz, it's so good to welcome you to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I wanted to start today by talking about 2020 and 2021 and COVID-19 and where we're at this year. So why don't you go ahead and tell me, in what ways has COVID-19 affected food insecurity? So COVID-19 has affected food insecurity, unfortunately, um, in quite a damaging way. And it's kind of a whole range of uh, factors that have cascaded to lead to the increase that we've seen in rates of food insecurity. So first of all, there's the economic effect of COVID and the fact that so many people have lost their jobs, that there now is a whole group of people who haven't been food insecure in the past and are really facing it for the first time. Um, And a lot of people are starting to use the charitable food system for the first time. So the charitable food system is a network of food banks and food pantries throughout the country that provide food for people often through um, community organizations like churches or other types of community nonprofits. And what's happened is their system has been disrupted. So often they get um, donations from retailers like grocery stores, but because of what happened in the beginning of COVID when the, um, there was such a rush in terms of going to the grocery store and we actually for the first time saw empty shelves in grocery stores, it made it hard for that system to maintain their supply as well. So this has led to things like long lines um, at you know, mobile food pantries where people are trying to come through and get food. And that, of course, has been very, very disturbing and upsetting. Um, A second thing that's really changed is that the charitable food system historically has really tried to move to a model where individuals can come into a food pantry and select their own food. So it's called a client choice model, and it's really designed to maintain the dignity of the experience and ensure that people are getting the food that is right for them and their family. But because of COVID and concerns about social distancing, 
we've had to go kind of backwards to an old model of just putting food in a bag and sort of handing the bag to the individual. And so that has also been um, troublesome for the charitable food system. Absolutely. And so moving on to childhood obesity, can you talk about uh, research that's come out that's indicating that perhaps childhood obesity rates will be on the rise this year? So I think that there is reason to think that this has been a difficult time for childhood obesity um, because of two factors, two big factors. One is um, school meals are very healthy. Since the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, the nutritional quality of school meals has improved considerably. And there's quite a bit of research showing um, how, as those new regulations got implemented, the quality of the meals went up. But because of COVID, a lot of school buildings have shut down or have shifted to hybrid models. And that has made it much more difficult for many children to access those healthy school meals in the regular way that they were able to do before. And then the second issue is just the lack of physical activity that if students aren't going to school, they're not having opportunities to be in PE and they're not even having the opportunity to just be physically active just throughout the day. And so having children instead sitting in front of a computer is pretty much the worst thing you could do from a physical activity perspective. And I think that there have been efforts Um, among school teachers to try to find ways to encourage kids to move around and um, not just sit still the whole day. But I can't imagine that when we look back and we look at the research data, we're not going to find that students have been substantially more sedentary during this period than they were a year ago. Absolutely. I have uh, one daughter who is in full in person and the other daughter who's on hybrid. But for both of them, I found that they're definitely less active. It's cold out and they are in front of the TV way too much because I have to work. And there's kind of, you know, it's hard to encourage them too to get out unless they're with me. Um, so that's definitely a struggle, I think, for, for all families, for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's been research done over the years that compares student weight over the school year versus over the summer. And you would think that during the summer, kids might be healthier because they might be outside playing more or they, you know, might have access to healthier foods. But in fact, we find the opposite. We find that eating habits and physical activity levels are actually better when kids are in school than when they're not in school. So that's part of why I'm so worried. Absolutely. You mentioned that school lunch is healthy. Can you talk a little bit about the USDA and the waiver that was implemented last year, uh, which has given some schools flexibility and how that's impacted the nutritional quality of uh, the menus. Sure. So this this happens to be something I've studied pretty closely. Um, so when uh, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act was passed back in 2010, it required the USDA to rewrite the regulation for school food. And What some people don't realize is there's really two components of that. There is the actual school meal, what we call the reimbursable school meal. So that is the meal that when a student takes it, the school gets some financial support from the federal government and often the state government to help pay for that meal. Then there's what they call competitive foods. So those are basically all of the snacks 
the kind of a la carte items that are sold, things in vending machines, school stores, fundraisers, et cetera. So the great thing about the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act is it required the USDA to release new regulations for both of those categories of foods. And in my opinion, there were substantial improvements. So for example, for the meals, there were things like for the first time ever, there was a calorie maximum and not just a calorie minimum. There were increases in requirements for whole grains, limiting sodium, um, ensuring that the dairy is low fat, ensuring that there's a wide range of fruits and vegetables provided each week and things like that. So the waiver you're mentioning, there were three areas that this past administration's USDA tried to kind of roll back some of those standards for the meals. So one was they tried to essentially stall the progress on sodium. So the original plan um, that came out during the Obama administration was for a progressive over a series of years. It wasn't all at once, but for over a series of years, there was going to be a gradual decrease in the sodium maximum so that really our entire culture needs to do this, decrease the amount of sodium in the foods that we're eating. Right. And the waiver essentially said, we're going to stop where we are now and not make any more progress. <laughs> so it was kind of stalling it. Um, the second is there was a lot of debate around milk, which is a significant factor in school meals. Milk is basically required um, for school meals. And there had been a big push in the um, public health and nutrition community to limit milk to skim milk or 1% milk, and to limit flavored milk to just skim milk. With the basic idea that if you're adding the calories from the sugar, you need to make sure there aren't extra calories from fat. And so the waiver there was, it's kind of subtle, and probably most people wouldn't even notice if you didn't study this, but it was essentially to allow 1% flavored milk. So it was kind of expanding the opportunity to serve flavored milk in schools. And then the third one had to do with whole grains. So again, um, part of what's hard in school meals is you're dependent on the food industry and what actual products are on the market for you to purchase for your meals. And so the rationale in terms of requiring progressive increases in the amount of whole grains available in schools was that the food industry would keep up and they would know there was going to be a huge market for selling things like whole wheat pasta um, and other sort of you know whole grain tortillas and things like that. And so the idea is that they would work on those products and then the schools would purchase them. And ultimately, we would have school lunchrooms that had a lot of whole grains. But um, what the USDA did, again, is they just sort of had this waiver that it's a little bit complicated. The rule was you had to have 50 percent whole grain rich and whole grain rich means at least 50 percent is a whole grain. (laughs) So it's kind of 50 percent of 50 percent is the Mm -hmm. actual whole grain. And so they essentially um, left it at that level, whereas it was supposed to really go up so that 100% of the grains in the school meal program were supposed to be whole grain rich. And so they kind of rolled that one back. Okay. And wasn't there also, um, the USDA implemented a meal pattern waiver, which allows schools to serve meals that don't meet certain nutritional standards because of COVID, if they cited a uh, supply chain issue? Yes. So during COVID, um, there were a number of waivers that were issued, most of them having to do with distribution. So, you know, allowing schools to be able to hand food out, you know, kind of outside the school building, hand out bags of food, which normally you wouldn't be allowed to do. 
But yes, they did issue a waiver that you could apply for to have a meal pattern waiver. And we actually did a research study here in Connecticut in the summer where we looked at what happened in the spring. And we actually found very, very little use of that waiver. Um, I, I think that the instances, at least in the, in the school districts that we looked at where they needed that type of waiver were pretty few and far between. And the reason is that the, the people running the school meal program you know, after March were the same people who were running it the whole time. And because these standards have actually been in place for a number of years now, it's, it's kind of a um, well-oiled machine. They really understand how to meet the pattern. And what we heard from food service directors is maybe they couldn't do it exactly the way they would have done before, but they were smart enough to make sure that they had sort of backup things, um, you know, sort of dried fruit and, you know, other examples of um, fruit. It was mostly the fruits and vegetables that they worried about of ones that they could keep available and use um, when they needed to, if what they were planning to serve, somehow they had a problem with the distribution chain. So again, I'll be interested to see the research in the end, but my guess is it probably didn't get used very much at all. That's very interesting. In our school dr- district, we are located in Bethel, Connecticut. And I have to say that we don't utilize the um, the free meals at this point, um, but I know that my kids will tell me that they do still, obviously they offer fruits and vegetables and it's a pretty good variety. Um, it may be limited for sure, uh, but I have to say the menu has gone down even even more. So, you know, I think today was graham crackers with a cheese stick. So not really the best thing that I'd want my kids eating. Um, but, you know, they are struggling for sure in, from a financial standpoint. I think that really is the challenge. I think that because the distribution has gone down so much because students aren't in the school building as much, they, you know, it's a it's sort of a vicious cycle because then they're bringing in less money. It's a less reliable customer base, if you will. And so there's, I think, more fear about putting out a lot of money for food if they're worried that they're going to end up having it, you know, being stuck with it and not able to distribute it. So there's sort of an irony in the school meal world where the districts that have um, sort of everybody gets a free meal. So here in Connecticut, some of our big cities have what's called community eligibility and essentially all students, it's universal free meals. They sometimes are in the best shape from a business perspective. It's a stable group of students who are getting the meal every single day. It actually gets rid of a lot of the stigma because everybody eats the school meal. And I think it really allows them in many ways to um, to do a better job nutrition wise because they know that the meals will get selected and eaten. Right. Okay, great. So moving on to how COVID has affected our world, how would you say that it's affected health inequities for families in the U.S.? So I think that COVID really has highlighted the tremendous inequities that we have here in the United States. I think what we've learned is how close people live to the edge financially and um, losing jobs and suddenly not being able to afford basics is not something that's kind of evenly distributed by race and ethnicity in the United States. And so I think we're starting to see how there is 
um, vulnerability for certain populations, and they are definitely suffering more. I think the fact that the um, rates of having COVID and dying from COVID have also really highlighted the inequities by race and ethnicity in the U.S. and showing that it really is disproportionate, um, which is probably due to a lot of different things. Access to healthcare is one of them. Just pre-existing conditions, which I would argue are a consequence of where people live and their circumstances, is going to increase someone's risk of um, of dying from COVID. And so I think that it's sort of put a magnifying glass to a problem that many of us knew was there and hopefully will lead to more attention to fixing it. Right. So we talked a little bit about this, but with kids at home, whether they're on distance learning, a hybrid model, or even, you know, being on full in person, there's still more time spent at home. Um, or even if they're in quarantine, if they've been had a direct contact with someone or they are sick themselves or someone in the family is sick or um, just this normal disruption of life. So in what ways have the dynamics of home life changed? Well, I have just sort of seen, you know, from my colleagues who have children of different ages who are home with them oftentimes as they're trying to work. Um, I think it's just flat out impossible. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I just don't think that people, you know, myself, my kids are actually already out of the house. My my kids are old enough that they're two of them are in college and one of them is already living on her own. And I look at my colleagues with younger children and I just have no idea how they do it. I think it's put a huge amount of pressure, particularly families where, you know, if there are two parents, both parents are trying to work and the kids need supervision. And there's just, I can't imagine people are getting very much sleep. I am sure people's eating behaviors are completely disrupted because of just the difficulty finding time to go grocery shopping and cook and things like that. So. I imagine that it's been extremely stressful, particularly for families with small children. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about some recent research that you led that found that unhealthy food donations and social stigma are linked to higher rates of both food insecurity and obesity among food pantry clients. Yeah. So, you know, we're really interested in studying the charitable food system and it it's kind of a fascinating system. It has this long history of essentially being a way to both kind of take, like reduce food waste. So if there's extra food that hasn't sold at a store or by a sort of distributor or something like that, it, instead of throwing it away, they give it to a food bank. And then at the same time to address food insecurity. But because of that, historically, the way that success was measured was just pounds of food. So there are about 200 food banks around the country. Um, most of them belong to a national network called Feeding America. And one of the things that I've learned when I started studying this is they all report to Feeding America how many pounds of food they distributed. And the more pounds, the better. But the problem is that a pound of food um, you know, that comes from, let's say, sugary drinks or um, you know, kind of our sugary cereal is not the same as a pound of food that's from fruits and vegetables. And so when we started trying to understand the system and its effect on people's health, what we saw was that even though overall, of course, there's a real effort to try to provide the best food that they can, that this pressure that it's 
quantity over quality sometimes led to distributing more unhealthy food, which in turn was harming the health of the people who were using the system. So we argue that that was, in fact, increasing inequities and increasing risk because people were not able to get the nutritious food that they were looking for. So we did a bunch of studies um, to try to document this. We surveyed people who use food pantries and showed that when you ask them what they want, they want fruits and vegetables and meat and whole grains and dairy. So they're looking for what I would say is real food, real groceries. Um, and they also are more likely to suffer from diet-related chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, um, high blood pressure, heart disease. And so we tried to really make the argument that food banks need to shift their operations so that they're maximizing the amount of these healthier foods that they're providing and really minimizing the less healthy food. And so it's it's a way of trying, I mean, it's a real mindset that you have to change because people have to really start thinking about, this isn't about the number of pounds, but it's really about the quality of the food we're providing. Right. So my daughters and I, we volunteer once a month for a local organization that combats food insecurity in our in our local area in Connecticut. And I will say a lot of the the food is highly processed foods. And so it, it kind of, it, I think it opened their eyes to to see that, wow, we, we have a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables and real whole foods in our home. And it's, you know, we're really at an advantage. Um, but it, I think it breaks my heart when I go there and I can't get good food. Uh, however, they also, I guess about a year ago, they um, were able to get a grant from an organization. And so oftentimes, most months, there will be fresh, plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables. And so we get all excited about it. And even if it's frozen, we get really excited about it. Um, But what would you say that um, has to happen in order for these organizations to have funding, resources to be able to, to change that mindset? So I definitely think funding is important um, because, you know, ultimately someone needs to find how to get the healthier foods and, you know, healthier foods, unfortunately, are less shelf stable than unhealthy foods. So there's sort of the timing working against you. Right. Um, But I think that there one of the things we are trying to do is we have developed a nutrition ranking system. So it's sort of like a stoplight green, yellow, red. Um, categories of nutritional quality that can be applied to the charitable food system. And here in Connecticut, um, we have worked with both food banks that we have here, FoodShare and and the Connecticut Food Bank, for them to start tracking the nutritional quality of their inventory. And then in FoodShare in particular, that information is available to the people at the food bank doing their online shopping from the food bank. So we did a study where we showed that after people who do the shopping for the food pantry could actually see the nutrition rank on that platform. So they could see, you know, tomato soup, green, um, you know, you know, some type of refined grain, yellow. And they were actually changing what they were ordering because they had the information that they needed. And so we saw a significant increase in the amount of green products that were being ordered, a decrease in the red products. And then we've replicated that in food pantries. So there are a number of food pantries around the state that have reorganized their shelves so that um, there's actually green, yellow, and red are separated and labeled. So someone who knows that they need to look for low sodium products or low sugar products 
doesn't have to sit there and go through boxes and boxes and cans and cans, but can quickly put their hands on the products that we have already judged are below a certain threshold in terms of sodium or sugar. And we did another study showing that when you provide that information, that it does shift the behavior of people in the food pantry. So I'm optimistic. I sort of believe that what gets measured gets changed. And so our hope is to continue providing tools that will allow each kind of each player in this whole system to do the measurement, to see the value, and then to shift their behavior to increase the amount of healthier food that's in the system. And are there plans to bring that to a national scale? Yes, there are. So we um, developed the ranking system. I was um, co-chair with a colleague in California of a national committee that had representatives from all over the country. Um, It was sort of half researchers and half food bankers. And we came up with the system together. We then um, released it and recommended it to Feeding America. And Feeding America has said that this will be the official system that they recommend to their food banks. And they're currently working on um, providing mini grants to food banks around the country who want support to start implementing this system. And so it's very exciting um, because I feel like there is a lot of movement. It it started back in February of last year. um, And then, of course, COVID happened and everything got put on hold. But it's now back up and running again. And I'm excited to see what happens this year. I think we'll see a lot of movement in this front. That is very exciting. So with that, Dr. Schwartz, we're going to take a break. With the kids at home a lot more these days, there may be more time to have dinner together, but finding the time to plan healthy and delicious meals is still a challenge. A few months ago, I tried the dinner daily, and getting dinner on the table every night became a whole lot easier. The dinner daily isn't a meal kit, but a weekly personalized dinner planning service that sends you meal plans and an organized grocery shopping list based on your food preferences and dietary needs. And it's the only service that uses your grocery store's weekly specials to help you save money. What I love most about the Dinner Daily are the recipes, most of which take only 30 minutes to make, and they're so easy, healthy, and delicious. My kids love their taco salad, garlic steak with feta cheese, and the carrot and parsnip mash. Not only can the Dinner Daily save you money, but you can try it free for two weeks And right now, you can get 15% off with the code HEALTH15. Just go to thedinnerdaily.com and use the code HEALTH15. And now, let's get back to this week's episode of Food Issues. In our last segment, we were talking about unhealthy food donations at food pantries and social stigma, which are linked to higher rates of both food insecurity and obesity. So now let's talk a little bit about food marketing in the U.S. And there was a recent study that came out and it found that adolescents may be even more vulnerable to junk food marketing appeals than younger children. Can you talk a little bit about that study? So it's interesting um, when you talk about Uh, food marketing to kids. And we've been involved in this area of research for quite a number of years. And I think part of the issue is that there's agreement that we need to protect our smallest children. So for example, there are companies that just come right out and say, we will not market to children under six. Like, So everybody basically agrees if you're, Mm -hmm. you know, under six years old, um, you really can't understand what 
marketing is and that it's unethical to try to market to children that young. And then there's sort of the elementary school ages where there's um, not really agreement that marketing among the industry this is, that marketing is completely wrong, but they say that they'll only market healthier foods as they define them themselves Mm -hmm. um, to children that age. And so that's one thing that's going on. But then once you get above 12, um, even though the, you know, kind of professionals, the sort of child development experts and the public health professionals would all argue that we would like to see children protected all the way through adolescence, um, the food industry disagrees and really kind of caps it at 12 in terms of the age at which they think that children need some type of protection. So there are a couple of things that happen with adolescents. Number one is they're basically exposed to the same amount of marketing um, as adults. And in some cases, they're actually targeted very specifically with certain types of products like sugar-sweetened beverages and fast food. And um, they also have more uh, autonomy. (laughs) So, you know, you could argue that if you're marketing to an eight-year-old, it might not really matter because it's not like the eight-year-old can get in the car, drive to the store and buy their own products, whereas a teenager um, potentially could. And so I think that ironically, the negative impact of food marketing, it could be higher among adolescents because they um, are exposed to it. They have more autonomy to act on it. And even psychologically, um, adolescents are known to be greater. They take more risks. And so sort of expecting an adolescent to decide, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea and I shouldn't do it is kind of asking them to do something that isn't typical of adolescents. And so it's it's strange, but adolescents really are in some ways the most vulnerable population when it comes to the negative consequences of unhealthy food marketing. So do you have advice for parents about how to cope with that? So... <laughs> I think, you know, as parents, there are a couple of things you can do. I mean, you certainly want to repeatedly, starting when your kids are little and continuing to reinforce the message that, you know, how to recognize marketing, how to recognize persuasive intent, teaching your children that, you know, these people are trying to make money and that's why they're trying to convince you to buy this product. So you want to try to teach um, for there to be a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, at the same time, I you want to really set an example at home in terms of what foods you buy and you keep in the house. So if you um, want, you know, to influence your children's eating habits, the most important thing is what you buy and what you have at home and what you feed your kids. Now, there's a very interesting phenomenon that some people are convinced that if you don't, let's say, have um, you know, cookies and ice cream and potato chips and soda in the house, that your children will kind of rebel and go out and eat twice as much of that when they finally get a chance to do that. And the research really doesn't support that. Um, We actually did a study once where we looked at college freshmen and we had surveyed them when they were seniors in high school about what they ate and the foods that were available to them and whether or not their parents had any rules about certain foods that they could or couldn't eat. And then we um, surveyed them again, their freshman fall, and then their freshman spring on the same questions. And what we found 
was that when when students go to college and they have that freedom for the first time, everybody's eating habits kind of take a nosedive. You know, right. they, there's more pizza, there's more, um, you know, sugared cereal, whatever it was, they, they are eating more of it. But by spring, what we saw was the students who grew up in houses eating whole wheat bread were eating whole wheat bread. And the students who grew up in houses eating sugared cereal were eating sugared cereal. So in other words, they go back to their roots that ultimately students are going to choose the foods that are familiar to them that they grew up eating. And even though there might be this sort of bump in the beginning, that it really does settle down. And so I find that parents are very relieved to hear that news because they worry a lot about sort of creating a monster by, you know, not giving their kids soda or candy or something at home. And I think that that's one thing to know. Um, a second piece of advice, though, that I give, and, and, you know, my just I should mention my background is actually treating eating disorders and obesity. And so in the eating disorders field, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, there are no good foods and bad foods and a lot of resistance to kind of categorizing certain foods as forbidden. And the way that I tried, at least in, with my own children, is essentially to say you're you can have one dessert a day. Mm-hmm. And it's one. <laughs> so right. each so each day, you know, my I would I would just to make it easier, I would buy things that tended to be packaged in little single servings. So whether it was like ice cream sandwiches or um, you know, or we if we made cookies, we just made, you know, we didn't make two dozen cookies, we made a smaller number of cookies. And to kind of have dessert available and in a reasonable like single serving size and that was something that you could have once a day but the idea was that if you went to a birthday party that afternoon you didn't then have another dessert after dinner or if we went out to dinner you could have a choice you know you could sort of have you know soda or french fries or ice cream but not all three right and so it's sort of teaching moderation by example and not making anything forbidden but really communicating that you have choices and everybody's entitled to a treat it's not like every morsel we put in our mouth has to be the most nutrient dense possible but you kind of want to have it clear that it, this is your diet overall and it has to be kind of put in its own place and i think i mean my kids are in their 20s i think it basically worked Um, and I think that, you know, at the same time, you really want to do lots of other things like involving your children in cooking and shopping, having them participate in making meals. Um, I did find that because I really didn't buy, um, packaged, I really didn't buy packaged cookies at all. Um, that if they wanted cookies, they had to make them that they're excellent (laughs) bakers. Mm -hmm. They learned that very quickly. Um, (laughs) and they bake all kinds of things, but I think it's just this idea that, um, you know, it's fine to have a treat, but it shouldn't be something mindless that you're just doing without even thinking about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely instilling those habits early on is really key. And that's good news that they, they, keep those habits throughout their lives. So moving on to, there was another recent study that came out last year in pediatrics about YouTube influencers and how they're marketing unhealthy food and drinks through product placement. Um, Any other tips for parents on how to navigate this when kids, even kids my age, they're in elementary school, they wanna be on YouTube or they are on YouTube and it's hard to monitor what they're watching. So I have, I I am aware of that study. Um, That was actually a former graduate student of mine who is um, the the, uh, faculty member who did that study. And 
You know, there's a part of me that just thinks of that game whack-a-mole where it Uh feels like the food industry is so smart. And every time, you know, the sort of government regulators or public health field pressures them to change their behavior, they change one thing, but then somehow they come up with a different strategy. So this is a very sneaky thing because it isn't the same thing as buying a commercial during a television program, which they would not do. But it sort of allows them to get their products in front of people um, without it quite looking so obvious what they're doing. And the fact that it even seems like it's um, sort of organically happening, you know, that this child really loves this product and this has nothing to do with getting paid by any company in some ways makes it worse because it sort of it makes it harder to be skeptical of it. Um, I don't have a great answer for this. I think that parents, again, just need to help their children understand um, what marketing is to understand that, you know, the people that they see on TV are getting paid to do this. And I think just trying to limit it, you know, to limit the amount that's watched. And as parents, I do think there is advocacy to be done in terms of um, trying to regulate this sort of behavior. And I think that's going to take, you know, parents calling their congressmen and explaining their concerns and really sort of supporting legislators who are going to ultimately be the ones who can make real policy changes that will prevent that type of activity. Absolutely. My children like to watch these videos of it's just of it's just video of a mom's hands and she's showing how she makes lunch boxes for her kids and all they're color coded and themed and all most of the product most of the foods that she puts in are processed and so in a negative way it's it's encouraged my kids to want to follow her lead although they can't because we don't buy those products but I've had to explain to them hey guys she's making money every time she puts out these videos and she's getting paid by all of those companies that she's featuring. And it it almost blows their mind. You know, they think, oh no, mommy, she's actually making this for her kids. Um, So, you know, while while definitely healthy cooking shows can help encourage kids to eat healthy, it it obviously can go, you know, the other way as well. Um, So moving on to chronic disease in America. So for, for many years, uh, childhood obesity, obesity, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, they're, they've been on the rise, and now we're seeing them even more so on the rise in children, which is really concerning. And so what is the research showing about COVID-19's impact on those rates? So I think it's a little early to, to draw too many conclusions because a lot of those big national studies Um, The data are collected and then it often takes about a year (laughs) to see it. Um, But I think just based on what we know about how COVID has affected people's behaviors, I would not be surprised at all to see that the rates increased. Um, Some of the progress that's been made, for example, um, there was a period of time a few years ago where there was a decrease in the obesity rates of very young children, preschool age children. And at the time, it was really attributed to changes in the WIC package. So WIC is the the women and children, women, infant and children food package, which essentially is lower income. Women with children under five can get coupons to get free food um, from this federal program. 
And there had been a big effort back um, earlier around 2009 to really improve the nutritional quality of what was in that package. And interestingly, a few years later, we could see there had been a decrease in childhood obesity among that very young group of kids. So um, similarly, there was another study that came out not that long ago looking at the effect of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act and body mass index. Um, And what they found was that when you look particularly at low income children, there appeared to be, you know, sort of a stabilizing. It wasn't continuing to go up the rates of childhood obesity since the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act lunch and school um, changes had been implemented. So in terms of COVID, I think the problem is that the way in which a lot of those um, initiatives were having an impact was through school, was through these federal food programs. And to the extent that those are not being used as much now, I think we will see um, negative consequences from that. Okay, great. And as we look towards this year, 2021, and we look to the new administration and the future for our kids on on all of these fronts that we've talked about today. Do you have concerns? Do you have hope? How do you feel about it? I have a lot of hope. Um, You know, having kind of been at this for a while, I've seen different administrations and whether they do or don't prioritize um, these sorts of issues. And certainly Michelle Obama was a champion for, for our field. She put it kind of on the map. She used the influence that she had to really heighten people's awareness. And I think to put pressure on the food industry to cooperate with um, efforts to improve school meals and food marketing and things like that. Um, I think going from that administration to the Trump administration was quite a drastic change. And much of the last four years were really spent playing defense. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there were efforts to roll back standards. There were efforts to do things like um, make it so that someone who was not an American citizen would be scared to take advantage of some of the federal programs, food programs that they were entitled to um, with this whole public charge issue that somehow it would hurt their abilities to become citizens down the road. And so it was really an assault on the programs that were designed to maximize health and really protect um, protect children in particular. So um, I'm really hoping that, that that we can sort of say goodbye to that time period and that phase. And I'm hoping with the new administration, we'll be able to get back to trying to really Um, improve things, to look at different federal policies that can help increase the likelihood that people have access to healthy food, increase the affordability of healthy food, and, you know, just kind of protect healthcare and provide an environment that's going to make it easier for Americans to be healthy and thrive. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dr. Schwartz. And where can listeners go to get more information about the Yukon Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity and some of these food issues that we've talked about today? Sure. So we do have a website. Um, it's www.yukonrudcenter.org. Um, we also have a monthly newsletter. It's very easy to sign up for where we send out once a month updates on the research that we've been working on and kind of what's happening in the field. Um, and on our website, there are 
Um, there's a lot of information. There's sort of um, infographics and kind of easy one, two page documents that summarize different parts of our of our field. And then you can also, if you're interested in the academic research papers, you can easily find those and download those. If you're a student and you are working on a paper on one of these topics, it can save you a lot of time in terms of looking at what some of the research is that's been done. So we, um, yeah, we would love to have your listeners come to our website and take advantage of the resources. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Food Issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or share it with a friend. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter at julierevelant.com for exclusive updates and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 